Okay, I think we're going to go ahead and get started. And if you're like if you're like me, you wish we could be next door too. I'm not exactly sure how we got these two titles scheduled at exactly the same time on research in, in uh, low-middle-income countries. And I wish I could scoot over there. But uh, hopefully I'm going to give you some pointers that I can tell you absolutely I have learned the hard way. There's no question. And I continue to learn. This year has been particularly difficult, uh, but has therefore been a huge learning experience. I spent the first half of my career, I've actually been in Africa part of every single year since 1989. I haven't missed a year uh, in Nigeria especially, but I've worked and collaborated in several other countries throughout Africa. A little bit, I got my, my feet wet in Asia, but not nearly as much as Africa. So I've had a lot of opportunity to do things wrong and to learn how to do them better. The first half of my career, what I was almost exclusively at Eku Baptist Hospital in Delta State, Nigeria, where we had an excellent res- residency, and I taught and relieved the missionary colleague that I'd trained with in Oklahoma City, and we worked together teaching, doing some research, and a whole lot of just clinical care. As God has changed the second half of my career, I do a lot more running around and a lot more uh, research and teaching and a little less, well, actually a lot less, hands-on clinical care, although I still do both. And as the next phase moves forward, I'm really excited because God has put me more and more in northern Nigeria. And if you heard Luke uh, last hour, I I just say amen, amen. Uh, I think, first of all, we have to practice excellent medicine. There's no place for substandard medicine as a, as a way to share the gospel. It's just not that way at all. And that's how I got invited to northern Nigeria was because of my work in severe neonatal jaundice. And, and uh, these young Muslim professionals said, hey, you've got to come back and you've got to come up to northern Nigeria because jaundice isn't the same up there as it is in the south where I'd worked predominantly in the past. And so it was that uh, attempt at excellent medicine that gave me the opportunity to now begin to build relationships and true friendships with these uh, northern pediatricians, many of whom are, uh, most actually are Muslim, especially in my Zari Akano connections. And it's a lot of fun. But first, we're trying to do uh, what we do very, very well so we'll have a legitimate platform and then as God opens the doors, be able to share Him through what we do. Uh, I hope that at the end of this hour that you'll be able to list at least three essentials of a research project in a low-middle-income country that you'll understand some of the ethical challenges involved in those partnerships and uh, some of the components of successful research publication. Uh, 
So one of the first uh, questions that I think us in the high-income countries need to ask is why research should matter to you and why we should encourage research to matter to our partners that we work with in low-middle-income uh, countries. And so this slide is more addressed at what you would say to them, which is uh, what question do you as a Nigerian pediatrician want to answer about your population? Some of you have been doing what you've been doing a long time and you've found success in those in those uh, treatments and uh, maybe you want to look at uh, your tried and true treatments that aren't known to the rest of the world and then allow dissemination of important findings to benefit uh, people in similar low-middle-income countries and maybe the West as well. And as you look at, at research, it's also a way for, uh, to develop funding to uh, further your creative solutions that you've learned. Now, uh, choose the project wisely. Why are you, uh, most of you coming from a high-income country, interested in the question? Is it just to further your career? <laughs> Not a good reason. Is it just to answer something that is important to Americans but not really important overseas? Will it benefit the local community? Uh, does the local community actually perceive it as a problem? Uh, it doesn't matter if you understand it's a problem and they don't. A few of you in this room are old enough to remember Dan Fountain. He was just amazing at being able to bring his uh, colleagues from the DRC into the question and presented it in a way that they saw that parasites had something to do with big bellies and uh, intestinal obstruction from these parasites. But of course, Dan understood that the real problem was that they needed to be using toilets and, and eliminating the problem. And, but first, he had to sit down under a tree in the DRC and talk with these folks, these Congolese, about why they thought it happened. And eventually, they came around to forming their own solution. And so it has to be viewed as their problem. And if they don't, none of your research is going to go very well. What are the true costs of the project? And this is both financial and non-financial. And uh, can you actually complete the, pro the project? Do you have the resources, both in terms of money and personnel, to finish? That's a biblical mandate as well, to count the cost before before you build a building. I put this in here because I think it's critical. Ask them and listen to them and respect them. You've got to do this. You've got to include them. I recently had a not-too-fun experience with a European country that will go unnamed. 
And this European country uh, never came to Nigeria. Okay, they never they came to their other sites that, that we were they were working with, but they were afraid of Nigeria. So they never came to Nigeria. They never res- really respected the Nigerian colleagues as they respected their colleagues from their other countries. And they never, therefore, really understood how much a strike for five months of the year could really impact it and how you could have very hardworking researchers who just couldn't do what another country could do that didn't, wasn't on strike for five out of the last six months. They didn't understand what it meant to have no electricity for 70% of most days or to be seeing, you know, a 100-bed nursery with one provider who was also responsible for another set of clinic patients or what. So all of this uh, led to a less than optimal situation and a situation where I had to really act as a go-between and say, hey, guys, this is not the way you ought to be treated. We ought to respect you. And that's one of the things I really respected. And I have to look back here because I can't pronounce her name correctly. Ariana said yesterday when she talked to us about building a neonatal unit. And I really like the fact that over and over and over Ariana said how excited she was to be working with excellent nurses, excellent medical officers, excellent interns, residents, and 50% of their faculty right now at Kajabi is at least 50% of their faculty are Kenyan. Okay? And hopefully, if she talks again in five years, she'll be able to tell us that 75% of them are Kenyan. But the thing that I really appreciated was the excellent Okay, the recognition that the people she's working with aren't less than she is. Okay, we have different strengths, we have different weaknesses, but we have strengths and they have strengths. And I think that's critical if you're going to build true research partnerships and collaboration over time. Always make decisions jointly, build their infrastructure and research capabilities from the beginning, work through problems and issues together, and again, always listen to them, always respect them. And uh, as you move forward, uh, assess needs and build sustainable capacity. I love this quote. This uh, Leo says, learn from them, start with what they know, build with what they have with the best leaders. When the work is done, the task accomplished, the people will say, we have done this ourselves. Ethics are critical in every project from the beginning. You must insist on IRB and ethics committee approval for all from all appropriate committees. 
both the U.S. and in-country approval is usually required if researchers from both continents are involved. Now, if you're a missionary and you're only working in your own country, then you may not need a U.S. IRB. But if you're working collaboratively, you must have an IRB. Uh, help your in-country institution form a proper IRB committee. Nancy Palmer talked about that yesterday, and I think her slides and things will be available if you need some help on how to do that. But it is important that they be a real IRB that doesn't just rubber stamp everything that comes from the U.S. Uh, Find out ahead of time, and I've certainly blown this on some projects, what other government approval is needed prior to starting a project. Is there a country IRB approval that needs to be gained? Is there the equivalent of the FDA that you need to work through? Uh, Are there other approval bodies that you need to bring supplies, equipment, and research into the country. And that's one place where you have to rely on your national colleagues to help you. But ask them the questions so that you'll help them think about uh, those questions. Because sometimes we don't. And I think in mission hospitals it's especially easy uh, to forget that because we've done it for a long time differently and only in the recent years have some of these national IRBs and FDAs and things come into being. And allow adequate time for all the approvals and assume from the get-go that it will take at least one and a half times as long as you expect it to. Okay? If you plan too tightly, you will find yourself in... Nigeria or Kenya or, or Pakistan unable to do the project because you don't yet have the IRB approvals on both sides of the waters. And it takes longer on both sides of the waters, especially if your U.S. IRB hasn't been used to working overseas. Okay, It won't go fast in the U.S. either. Uh, so start really, really, really early figuring out what you need and what is required both places. Uh, never agree to a project that only benefits Western countries. Very early in my career, I was asked to participate in some drug studies and things. I said a resounding no. Because I'd actually already been to Nigeria and worked in Nigeria before I came back and did a fellowship and became an academician. Never do that. One of the worst examples of that is a, a meningitis study that was done by Pfizer in Nigeria. And they haven't forgotten it because the meningitis drug that Pfizer brought in didn't work very well. And it wasn't likely a drug that was going to be cost-available and available in Nigeria that strong. And don't allow yourself to be sucked into a project that benefits you. Uh, It must benefit your host people. It must be 
felt to be sustainable over the long haul in your host country or region. And again, it must not test a product or medicine that the West would not allow to be tested uh, unless, of course, it's something that is only applicable to the host country. My, my research project on filtered sunlight using car window tinting without electricity went really well. And you can say, well, you just violated your last statement. Yeah, I did. But it was because my Nigerian colleagues know that electricity is not available most of the time in most of Nigeria. And kids are dying from severe neonatal jaundice. So yes, it was appropriate to test filtered sunlight in Nigeria, even though I do not plan to use it in the U.S. Would it work in the U.S.? Yes. Okay. But we have pretty much 24-7 electricity. Oh, I'm pretty sure there's some people in California, etc., that would use it if it was available. But I don't, I, it wasn't developed for them because we don't actually need it. Informed consent. Ah, this is a really hard one. And if you go back and read my very first study on jaundice in pediatrics uh, published in 1995, I forget, I should pull it out and just put it on the slide. I forget exactly how I said it, but I fudged a bit on the way I said my informed consent statement because way back then they would allow verbal consent. And I am almost 100% sure that that my Nigerian colleagues did not truly get informed consent because in their minds, why in the heck would you ask for permission to get two extra drops of blood? And so I couldn't hear what they were saying. I told them to do informed consent, but I'm not sure they really did it because they are like, you are ridiculous. Are you crazy? My Nigerian colleague in Obamashaw still says it to me all the time. You're ridiculous. You don't need consent for this. And yet I have to explain to him, sorry, Daniel. Yes, we do need consent because it's a U.S. requirement. And what is it, really? Uh, How do you assure that the patient and or parent really understands the consent? What languages does the consent need to be in? How do you assure that the consenting research team member is actually following the consent protocol? How do you deal with excessive IRB requirements, especially in cultures who remain paternalistic? and are usually given, at best, limited details regarding what they are consenting to. It's tough. It takes a lot of work and a lot of time. And it is one of the things that you as the Western researcher can bring to the table, is an understanding of why, uh, why consent is necessary and what needs to be in consent. And... Uh, As one researcher said, without context, approaches that are appropriate in one setting may be inappropriately replied in another. What approach would you take if your population you're dealing with is the Well, I'll show you that on the next slide. I almost showed you my brand new one, but decided I wouldn't do that in case my young uh, researchers got upset. But 
One of the things you can do is you can use a primarily pictorial consent. And this, the consent you see uh, up in the top is a primarily pictorial consent. And because it was basically a low-risk, no-risk study, RIRB in the U.S. Uh, approved it. I have another one that will be taken in Nigeria Tuesday when I leave, and that one's even more pictorial. And uh, my IRB called me yesterday and said, Hey, Tina, did their IRB approve this? And I said, Yes, okay. And so if the local IRB says this is the appropriate consent, especially in low-risk studies, you can get by with this sort of thing. The other thing you do is trans, uh, uh, translate it and have a, all my consents have a place for a thumbprint, okay? And so if the mother cannot read or sign her name, somebody reads it to her, and then we use a witnessed thumbprint, a witnessed thumbprint. And that's allowed by IRBs even in the States, although it would be pretty unusual for for our population not to at least be able to sign their name, usually. And so the top one is more of pictorial. The bottom one is the one they required for the filtered sunlight because that is a, not a high risk, but higher than the top study. And so we did have to go have all of the parts of the U.S. consent uh, adapted as best we could to their situation. And again, this is where your local researcher will say, this is what needs to be included in the consent in order for it to work in our country. And you sometimes have to go back and forth between countries to figure out what exactly will will satisfy both IRBs. And again, that takes time because it really does have to meet both national and international IRB or ethics committee standards. Now, I'm really proud of Nate Herr, uh, one of the people I work with in Minnesota who was able to get a Thrasher Early Career Award. And one of the reasons I'm proud of Nate is because even though his study was basically a no-risk study, I mean, he's doing ultrasound diagnosis of pneumonia, and looking at the accuracy of that in Uganda, it's pretty hard to hurt somebody with an ultrasound machine. But Nate still took the time and trouble to to make sure that his parents understood the consent. And so he developed five questions, and if they can't answer these questions, they go back through the consent again. So what is the study about? Uh, state one of the study-related imaging tests, and so that would either be an X-ray or an ultrasound. Your question, of course, would be different if you weren't studying ultrasound. Why was your child chosen to participate in the study? Is there any risk to your child, and how long is the study? And he expects the, the Ugandan team to be able to transmit the consent in a way that the parents can answer it. And if you can't, you got to try again. And I really thought this was an excellent idea, and I'd like to do it next time when I do a new study. 
And then really strive, and I've said this a hundred times, and I'll probably say it a hundred more, strive for equality in partnerships. A West is best approach is never appropriate. Pull expertise from all individuals in the research team and mentor junior members, expecting them to become team leaders over time. And I can't emphasize this too much. Foster mutual respect. Discrimination happens in both directions. It's never, it's never fair for us to discriminate against our low-middle-income partners, but it's not fair the other way either. Okay, so really work that this be equal, and uh, both of us should stand our ground. Our high-income partners need to stand their ground while humbly listening. Our low-middle-income partners need to do the same. Low-middle-income partners must be respected. High-income partners must be respected. Keep lines of communication open as much as possible and listen. Uh, assemble your research team. Ask yourself what expertise is needed. Don't forget the essential support personnel needed. If you do, it won't go well. Don't forget nurses. Don't forget a research manager. That person can be critical in making sure that protocols are followed, that supplies are ordered in time, that People who aren't quite doing their job are giving remedial training and a chance to do it right. Data manager person is critical, and that person needs to be CITA trained. They need to be trained in research ethics, Uh, administration, maybe lab, technicians, cleaners. uh, Remember uh, the whole team and go through your your project and say who is essential to making sure this is, gets done and it's rarely ever just the doctors or just the nurse practitioners. It's almost always a team. Again, a very biblical concept as we talk about the body of Christ and each part having a different but essential role. This is something I've learned over the past couple years and I'll never, ever, ever take lightly again. Negotiate authorship at the beginning. Discuss the international standards of qualifying authorship. Determine the author order based on the degree of involvement in the project. And make sure the host country is appropriately represented in the author list. One of my practices, and you could argue a little bit about this because I I really don't always ensure that the international authors have have done everything because I allow my international author to determine which Nigerians, for instance, actually belong on the paper because I want to do the best I can to assure that they're represented. But as I do that, I'm trying to, at the same time, teach them what authorship really means and what it qualifies to be an author. 
carefully anticipate needed supplies and equipment. Make sure your list is complete and that you've listed every single thing down to the screw or the filter that you won't be able to find in your host country. Know the actual type. Does it have to be 240 volt? Do you need a step-down transformer? Do you need a volt regulator? Uh, Know what temperature is uh, critical for storing samples. In my first study at Tinwick Hospital in Kenya, we stored our frozen uh, TNF samples in a regular freezer and every single sample was ruined because what we really needed was the minus whatever freezer. But I didn't know that and my mentor didn't tell me. And I walked up that hill in the middle of the night at the same time I was taking care of 75 to 100 patients by myself, doing my research on top of that, and we threw all the samples away. Really, really sad. Know where each and everything is coming from. Figure out a supplyable, uh, sustainable supply chain. Get as much in-country as reasonably possible. Have spare parts and a plan for fixing or replacing broken equipment. And for equipment that is essential to your research, try whenever possible to have two. Okay, so have two Billy Rubin machines. Okay, have two uh, centrifuges. The things that are essential. That way if one breaks and you have to send it back to the U.S. to be fixed, you don't lose months of research time uh, doing it. Seek funding. Carefully calculate the cost and then add an extra 25 to 50%. Not because you're trying to be dishonest, but between the time we started our last project in Nigeria and the time we'll, and now, the Naira has devalued by half. Okay? So what would have cost me 100 Naira Last year, now cost me 200 Naira. So build in a cushion, not an unreasonable cushion, but a cushion that will take care of changes in currency. With that, be willing to give back what you don't really use. Okay, so if I ask it and then the Naira goes the other direction, Thrasher will be ecstatic if I don't spend all their money. Okay, but build that in. Ask for donation of supplies and equipment when appropriate and possible. Look for appropriate grants. What areas do they fund? Level of funding provided and costs available within the grant. One of the possibilities to you is USAID. Uh, If you want to look at that guide, check the user guide uh, online. Uh, look for the funding mechanisms they have. There's both assistance, which is actual grants, or acquisitions, which might apply to your, your equipment, which is contracts. And keep in mind that for small organizations, at least in the beginning, it's sometimes helpful to have a U.S. partner submit it because it's a U.S. grant. Over time, they can do it, but... Initially, it may be most helpful for you to do it. 
There's a lot of other organizations. There's a lot of foundations and philanthropic organizations. One of the best known, of course, is the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. That's tough to get in to get it unless you match perfectly, but consider them. Thrasher Research Foundation loves low-middle-income countries and uh, will often fund trials. World Health Organization, not really a donor, but it's a good resource. There's a, I gave you a online to get grants for non-U.S. organizations. And then remember to, that almost every study you're doing must now be re- registered in clinicaltrials.gov before the first patient is enrolled. And that now includes educational studies. That's a recent addition. In the past, they didn't require those, but now they do. And if you fail to do that, you may not be able to publish your results, especially in a U.S. or high-impact journal. So do it from the get-go. It's not that hard. Do the best you can. They'll let you know if you made mistakes. But put it in. And then if you have to correct every other box, fine. But start it before you enroll the the first patient. Think about statistics, what sample size is best. Uh, uh, Does the research design allow paired or unpaired data? Do you want uh, to factor in uh, false negatives or false positives? Do you anticipate large or small variance in the data sets? What are you trying to detect? Uh, Is it a fairly small difference? Uh, do you want to be very close to the true value? And as you do that, one of the things you need to think about is power. And I'm always mixing up this. My sister Ida is much better at this than I am. But power is defined as the ability of an investigation to determine the statistical significance when a true difference or association actually exists. There's two important kinds of errors. A type 2 beta error occurs when the investigator claims that exposure is not associated with the disease when it really is, and then uh, thus a false negative. And, in, and if the investigator accepts a 20% possibility of missing a true finding, the study would have a statistical power of 0.8 or 80%. This is from Clydette Powell. She says, the last word on statistics. Question, why statistics are like a bikini bathing suit? Answer, what is revealing is interesting. What is concealed is crucial. I like that. Consider a pilot trial first. Uh, It limits the cost. It identifies unforeseen obstacles And it provides the basis to get larger grant funding. And it also provides for training of the research team with fewer patients. Again, expect the unexpected. Machines will break. The Internet will fail. Trusted team members will disappoint you. Essential reagents will run out. And results will surprise you. Plan, then press forward, stay in the race.
data collection, be clear and consistent about what, when, and how to enter data, time and date, all entries. And if you're using paper forms, make sure that you're using the same format. If somebody enters January 11th as 1-11 and somebody else enters it as 11-1, you may have a huge problem. So talk about it and really use the format that they're most familiar with, okay? And it'll, you'll have less trouble. Uh, discuss appropriate correction of mistakes. Uh, ah, your funding agent will have a heart attack if they come to said country and find white out on your data forms or completely blackened out data. Teach them about the one line through only. And then discuss appropriate management of omissions. Okay, I always tell them, none of us are perfect. In fact, I am one of the worst to miss something on the form. Forget to put the temperature in. Forget to put something in. Occasional omissions are going to happen if people are honest. They just are. We're all human. So if you have 100% filled in from the get-go without going back, somebody's lying. Okay? But if half the forms are missing half the data, somebody's not doing their job. Uh, So talk about that too. What do you expect? Allow them to be human, because you are too. Uh, But tell them complete data is important. And... uh, Go over the fact that you'll have to try to fill it in if you leave it out, but never put so much pressure on them that they have to be dishonest. Okay? Let them know that it's better to have no data than false data. Uh, and it, it's helpful to have an online database. So a lot of us are now using REDCap. REDCap up to this point is required internet access to actually enter the data. That's changing. They're trying to make REDCap accessible without constant internet. There are other paid programs out there that you can look into for that don't require in internet. Strongly suggest keeping backup paper copies. Make sure the formatting is consistent. Data integrity. We heard that uh, in the last session as well with the fact that many of these cultures are shame-honor cultures. And so sometimes uh, it doesn't go over very well to see honesty the way we Americans see it. So you really have to emphasize that the expectation is that all data will be honest even when the results are not what we expected. Have accountability and discuss up front what the consequences of falsifying data will be and discuss the expectations for correct data, again, even in a shame-honor culture. It helps to have a clear protocol. Most funding agencies and IRBs actually require them but even if they don't, it's helpful to have one. May, may be uh, required to submit your protocol to major journals. Uh, they may say, uh, if you're trying to publish in a high-impact journal, send us your protocol. 
and you would never get it into the high-impact journal without a protocol. And give yourself reasonable leeway, especially in the protocol. Uh, don't uh, make it impossible to do the bilirubin with a different machine, for instance. Okay? Because if that machine breaks, I want to have the leeway in my protocol to be able to use a different machine that I found. All right? So you want to be uh, tight as you can be, but give yourself leeway so that you don't violate protocol. Because violating protocol is a huge deal. Helps to get an example either from your institution or if you're not working much with an institution and are doing it kind of freestanding, get a copy of a protocol from somebody else who has written one. It can be on a completely different topic, but it will give you the elements of a protocol. Standard operating procedures are also important. Have them. Make sure they're relevant. They should line up with your protocol. And again, make them specific enough to be helpful, but vague enough to prevent unnecessary violations. Different from the protocol, sometimes the SOP can be changed with minor changes that don't affect the protocol without IRB approval. Check with your IRB if you're not sure if what you're doing there is okay, but you can make minor changes, i.e., I would feel comfortable changing to a different brand of bilirubin machine without telling my IRB as long as the way the bilirubin run, was run was the same, something like that. You don't have to go back and say, I'm changing from this company to that company because that company quit working or whatever. These are just some examples you can look at. Data storage and security. De-identify data whenever possible. Limit the number of people who have access to the personal health information. And use locked files and locked computers. Training. Allow adequate time for the initial training. Assemble a training team and include people with expertise that you are lacking. For me, that meant finding a lab technician to come with me because I'm not very good at doing pipetting and bilirubin, so I brought somebody who knew how to do it and teach it well. Sometimes that person's in country. We also brought a person from a different hospital in Nigeria to also help train. Uh, Reassess skills periodically and retrain if the deficits are identified or you have new personnel. Clear expectations and roles are essential. Make sure that each and every team player knows their role, agrees to their role, and title. Sometimes the title matters a lot to them, and you're using a title they see as degrading. You don't, but they do. Listen to them and change it. Roles of the PI and co-PIs are especially important if you're going to have long-term relationships and projects. And cultural differences and expectations can, make, can be difficult at times. As much as possible, divine these roles at the beginning and, again, be culturally humble. Plan to work yourself mostly out of a job. 
Maybe at the beginning you really do need to be the PI. But 10 years into your work, you shouldn't need to be the PI every single time. Again, respect them, treat them as equals they are, and always realize they'll teach you as much as you teach them. So be willing, be humble and willing to learn from them and acknowledge the tremendous obstacles, as I mentioned earlier, that they face. I sort of hit on this before, but I'm going to hit on it again. Have a clear plan for ensuring accountability, Periodic checks of the records without announcing those checks will help uh, alert leadership to problems and decide and actually let them decide what disciplinary procedures should be put in place to deal with problems. And this actually is best come from the in-country co-PI if you're the PI. Ensure open and honest communication with the whole team, not just with the co-PIs. Bring the whole team. Encourage them from the get-go to be honest, to talk to you. Not always easy for nurses or lab techs in low-middle-income countries because in their relationships they may not be allowed to do that, but on your study they need to. If partners are from both sides of the water, strongly suggest frequent Skype, and I'm using Skype, it doesn't have to be that. It can be WebEx or WebMeeting or whatever, one of the others, but set up a regular time. One of the most successful projects I'm aware of has at least twice weekly meetings with between the two countries. One meeting is with the PIs and co-PIs and leadership, and the other meeting is with the whole team. And that's where you can troubleshoot problems, build the team, and do all kinds of things. So you can say, how come fever temperature is missing on 25% of the patients? And you all can figure out how to deal with that until you, one year later, are trying to analyze your data and realize 50% of them are missing temperatures or missing birthplace or whatever. And by doing that, you can correct the problem when it's easy to correct and doesn't destroy your data. Again, for disseminating, plan ahead. Again, determine author orders and authors to be included ahead of time. I've said it before, but always be fair to your national and international colleagues. No current rules. Much to some of our naive mission-type people, uh, data sharing is becoming a huge issue. Uh, There have been major conferences in low-middle-income countries recently where uh, there's been a huge emphasis on high-income countries stealing data from low-middle-income countries without giving them appropriate ownership and recognition. It's happened for a long time, and it's real, okay? It's, everybody doesn't do it, and hopefully none of us do, but it is real, and it is a problem. But talk about it from the get-go. Who owns the data? Generally, it's both of you. Okay, and it should be. What can be done with the data after the primary study is completed? 
what can be done with jointly shared ideas after the main study is finished. However, it's also important that we really work to teach our low-middle-income partners things that are not okay or great pain and great unethics can happen. Let them know ghost authorship is not okay, all right? It's not okay for 10 Nigerians to be on a paper that really had nothing to do with the paper. If you're going to put them on the paper, teach them how to contribute to that paper. Using jointly owned data by either side, us or them, without including the other side, uh, or at least having explicit permission not to, is never okay. Not acknowledging funding jointly obtained by either side is never okay. In some of these situations, it may help to have an MOU, and certainly Bill Gates is encouraging that, but the MOU should protect both sides. It's not fair for the MOU to just protect them or just protect you. It needs to protect everybody on the project. Okay? And that's something you're going to have to teach them, especially with the emphasis being so heavy on the fact that we're stealing. And, of course, we ain't all stealing. Uh, choose a, a venue or journal. Uh, choose where am I going to present this data? Is it going to be a meeting? Is it going to be a journal? Should it be local or global or both? Is it high impact appropriate? Uh, who are you trying to reach? Sometimes I intentionally choose a low impact journal because that journal is read by every one of the colleagues in that country. And so it's appropriate. So it's not all about impact. Uh, Open access versus traditional. Keeping in mind things like open access usually charge money. And sometimes that money can be big, big bucks. How are you going to cover it? What are you going to do? Is that the way you want to go? Look uh, at the field of interest of the journal, the readership of the journal, quality of the findings, and speed of publishing. Maybe you don't want to use that local journal that takes a year to get back to you. There's a lot of journals, and I could have put about a hundred. I just listed a few just to give you examples. And again, uh, as you continue to think about uh, disseminating, be careful about current publishing rules i.e. multiple publications from the same data. And one of the things that I have to teach everybody, including myself, is be aware of plagiarism of both others' work. That's easy, okay? I don't plagiarize Susie's work. We all know that's wrong. But what a lot of us don't realize is that self-plagiarism is just as bad in the eyes of the journal as me stealing Susie's data. Okay, And that's hard to do, especially when you're publishing lots of articles on the same thing, i.e. it's easy to do it. It's hard to avoid it because when you're publishing a lot. 
So be sure that you quote even yourself, okay, uh, if, you're, if you're talking about other studies that have been done. And remember, despite the obstacles, you can do it. You, uh, cross-cultural workers and those who support them, can be part of the solution. And on these next couple slides, I've given you uh, examples of publications where cross-cultural workers, i.e. missionaries, have partnered with their local collaborators and done a lot of good work. And these two slides are just a few of the examples, not nearly all of them. And I'm sure many of you in this room could add pages and pages to these examples. But it can be done, and you can be a part of it. I do want to thank Phil Fisher and Claudette Powell and Mark Topazian, who's lecturing next door, for their suggestions and help. And want to thank you for listening. And we do have about six minutes for questions, I think. So I'll try to answer questions if anybody has any. Yes. So it's a fairly complex undertaking to do if you're a field missionary. Um, are there are there people who can sort of mentor you through uh, the learning process on your first couple of projects? Yes, there are, and some of us are working hard to do more of that. I mean, there are people running around like Phil Fisher and myself who are very, very willing to uh, to collaborate with you, and we don't have to be on the project or, or, or part of the real project to do that for you. Uh, so there's a lot of people at the, I don't know if you've ever been or able to come to the CMA, CMDE conferences that are in, right now, Greece and Thailand. There's a lot of people there with a lot of different specialties that will work with you and walk through you, and those are excellent sources. Also, like one of the things I'm working on doing with my Nigerian colleagues is setting up uh, grant workshops to teach them, much like the reason I was able to get what I call real funding instead of just equipment and supplies was because the University of Minnesota had a grant workshop that lasted a whole semester, and I gave them my terrible idea, no, my good idea, excuse me, my good idea and my terrible write-up of it. And over a semester, we worked as a group, so maybe I would send my my, uh, project to Pat, and Pat would send her project to Susie, and learning with what we learned in the class, we critiqued each other's grants even though she might have been writing about TNF and I was writing about dear old sunlight and Susie was writing about, you know, HIV. So it didn't have to be the same project, but we worked on each other and we went through the important elements and learned how to do it. We're trying to set up the same thing for both our missionary and our teaching hospital colleagues in Nigeria right now. That's one thing that, that will help over time. Uh, uh, So those are two ideas. One, uh, abuse some of us that are willing to help you, and uh, we'll do our bestest or put you in touch with somebody in your own area who's willing to do that. And then CMDA and then workshops in the sorts. Anything else? Any other questions? Yes.
Well, again, you, you do, you, that very much depends on your project. And from the get-go, I work with my Nigerian colleagues to say, is this a problem uh, and what are we going to do about it? And that helps determine who the subjects will be. And then depending on whether it's community-based, if it's community-based, you may need to figure out, do we go to every fifth house? Do we go to, you know, uh, every tenth house? Do we go to this group of houses and then that group of houses. And then for the hospital-based, it's often who comes in with the problem. So when I'm looking at jaundice in a hospital setting, it's who comes in with jaundice. And do they give me informed consent to include them? So that's something you really need to work out with your statistician. And your statistician is extremely important in deciding that very question. And, of course, everybody has the right to refuse to participate if they want to. Decide if you need to give them transport money, what you need to do, but be sure it's not a bribe, that it's appropriate for the study, uh, that you're not bribing them to be a part, especially in a low-resource setting. Does that help? Mm -hmm. Okay. Other questions? Yep. It is. Well, okay. If it's a medical student study that you do not plan to publish, you do not have to register it. But if you have in the back of your mind ever that you're going to be publishing it, register it. It's not actually all that hard. And it's better to be safe than sorry. Now, if you're 100% sure that it's totally educational, not going anywhere outside your institution, no. You do not have to register it. The problem comes, and, and I have reviewed some articles where this happened. They figured that late into the process, the journal figured out that the trial wasn't registered, and they kicked it out even though it was supposed to be the final revision for submission. And they went back and looked and said, uh-uh, we're kicking this out because there's no clinical trials. And the educational projects and questionnaire kinds of things, that's a really recent addition. So if your study was started five years ago, you can probably still publish it because they know that they just started this. So if it's an old data, you can probably get by with it. And same with other data if you... Like I recently read a study that had been, the data had been was 15 years old. You could probably get that in without clinical trials if you can get anybody to accept 15-year-old data. But if you started it after you were supposed to be entering it, you better be entering it. But no, a totally, totally, totally institution-based medical student or even resident doesn't have to be if it's going to stay there. Anything else? Yep. Absolutely, and, and I've got two residents that are going with me to Nigeria this time and have a student that I'm going to be involving at home and hopefully eventually medical students and residents there absolutely as well. Yes, I've worked on several projects with people from both sides of the water that are trainees, and that's okay and a good idea. All right, but if you're a trainee, you still have to follow the same rules 
don't appear in Uganda at Malago Hospital and say you're going to do a research study that hasn't been through their IRB or they will be extremely upset and kick you out and say, no way, Jose. Okay? So it takes a lot of time. So as a trainee, if you, especially if you're doing it not tacked on to a <coughs> faculty, that you've done your homework and started this process at least six months ahead of time. But you can do it, and it's fun. Yes? Yeah, so I know uh, just from working a little bit overseas, that missing data can be a huge issue in some of these projects and uh, some difficulties with record keeping. What are some thoughts you have on how to prevent that and what to do when that arises in the middle of your project? Well, again, I'm going to do this next time because I just finished a project where we had that happen. It was a funded project, but most of the funding went to the machine and not the education, which turned out to be as important. We didn't have a research manager, and we didn't have Skype. I mean, honest to goodness, next time we do that, every single week we're going to have Skype calls. And we're going to be looking at the data because we're get, we have it in a database. We're going to say, okay, patient number 10 has no weight recorded. Patient number 15 has no temperature recorded. I'm just making those up. But I think weekly or at least at least every two weeks, Skype or something like Skype. I'm not trying to sell Skype, but something like Skype, <laughs> Skype-ish, at least every two weeks where you actually, with your team overseas, go through it. I ain't doing this again because we missed huge parts of data that's making the write-up of some really important findings hard. And then do your best to keep those charts in a way that you can go back to them if you need to. That's hard, but that's part of the reason that I encourage a paper chart. Okay, Sometimes it doesn't get into red cap, but actually it was on the paper chart. That can be difficult because charting, record keeping is not usually electronic and it's hard to find lost charts. That's why you want to be on top of it. It's easier to find a chart on a kid who was discharged last week than it is a kid who was discharged two years ago. So communication, 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 looking at everything. What's the problem? What data is missing? What protocol troubles are we having? What supply troubles are we having? Is the equipment working? Is everybody doing their job? I mean, again, in a huge study that's going well in northern Nigeria, they didn't have to fire a single team member, even though several of them started out not working like they needed to work on a study. But with help and training, they're doing it now. So they didn't have to kick anybody out. And this data is complete because they went through the charts together and said, this is missing. That's another piece that a research manager, again, next time we do a study, we're going to find the money for the research manager because the national research manager, we didn't have one. We didn't have any funding for one. But I won't try this again without it because that person can also be on the ground helping when you're not in said country. And then your, your national PI is critical to making this go well. He, he or she bridges the cultural barriers in a way you never can. All right.
Thank you. If you have any other questions, I'll be up here for a minute.